As a university student, I once was privileged to meet for lunch with an elderly history professor. This man had distinguished himself in academia as the authority on a peculiar religious sect that was living in the Midwest. I've forgotten the name of the particular sect, but many of us would be familiar with the Amish and groups like this, very similar to that, though they were a strain that was even smaller uh, than the Amish uh, uh, group. He mesmerized me with tales of how he found uh, cloisters of these people in, uh, in very remote rural areas and how he met them and gained access to them by befriending them and uh, gaining then, of course, keen insight into their beliefs and practices. I think he may be the only man in America that's been able to do that and to write from a university chair and to describe people like this. So it was very just a fascinating conversation. But I wonder as you think about groups like that, most of us have probably seen them somewhere or heard about them, I wonder what is it that motivates such groups to lead such distinct lives? I think there are probably many reasons. We don't want to oversimplify it. Some of these groups have certainly strayed far from the Bible, but I think that they seem to share, to varying degrees, a heritage of deep conviction that God's people are to resist the world and its evil influences. The passage that we read this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, they would know that passage very well. They would probably have it memorized and apply it to many areas of life that we may never think of to, to which to apply it. The resistance uh, on their part has been translated into a doctrine of physical separation from uh, modern technology. They live wholly off the land. They shun things such as cars, television, radio, running water in their homes, electric lights, modern appliances, certainly computers and the like. I mean, think about all of those things. None of us would be here right now if we shun those things starting at least today, this morning. We've been part of all of that. But as you go, the 21st century is about to dawn, and you can write today, go to an area where such people live, and you can see them riding down country roads in horse-drawn carts and buggies, dressed in simple clothes, far more fitted to the 19th century than the 20th, certainly than the 21st century. I believe these groups err greatly in their application of biblical separation from the world but I very much identify with their concern. In His Word, God specifically warns us as His people not to love the world, but to be separate from the world, as we've read earlier this morning. Now, I don't think for a moment that cloister groups gain any advantage over the flesh by isolating themselves from the world's influence, and documentation would make that very clear. As a matter of fact, the professor that I talked to talked to me how he had uh, got a rare moment where one of the elders of the group opened up to him and they discussed together. He, he talked to them about the fateful day when their cloister had decided that alcoholic consumption was something that they would participate in, they would not ban. And he talked about the devastating consequences of, of that choice. The point is the flesh. The flesh is there. The flesh is behind closed walls as much as it is out in the world. Behind the cloister, there's just as much lust. There's just as much pride, just as much selfishness and greed and rebellion as outside the cloister because it's all in the heart. You can't cloister yourself away from your own depravity. But when it comes to the influence of the world upon God's people, isolationist groups have some distinct advantages. 
living as they do in a subculture free of newspapers, theaters, television, magazines, the internet or whatever, they're not routinely bombarded by pornographic images. That's an advantage. In a subculture free of advertising, financial investments, and the values of corporate America, they're not routinely titillated with solicitations to worship the God of materialism. By shunning any consideration of secular literature, contemporary philosophies, never even hearing a, a, a talk show guru, they're not routinely bombarded with the doctrines of our therapeutic, humanistic, self-focused age. I think many Christians just dismiss such people as strange. Just don't think a whole lot about it. This weird group of people, we just kind of dismiss them. Criticizing their misunderstanding of how we're to relate to the world. The irony is in it all is that such criticism is so easily issued by believers who are themselves deeply influenced by the worldly solicitations to lust and materialism and humanism. Isolation within cloisters, I don't think, is God's plan for resisting the world, according to Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23, and certainly the entire uh, storyline of the book of Acts uh, in, in, in other places. But as we live in and among the world, we must learn to purposefully resist the influence of the world. Modern technology is not inherently evil, but we must develop sensitivities to the fact that there is a powerful and corrupt world system that is behind that technology. The consideration of human philosophies is not inherently evil, but we must be aware that there is a powerful and seductive world system that gives fuel to many of those ideas. There's a fine line between the noble technological and societal advances of our world and the godless spirit of the age that drives those who author many of these advances. We must ever be aware of the incessant, skillful appeal of the godless in our world to seduce our hearts away from God. Jesus said that there is a broad road which leads to destruction. Our master said that. The one that we follow, the one in whom we believe and place our trust and our absolute hope for eternal salvation said there's a broad road that leads to destruction and many find it. There's a narrow road which leads to life and few find it. What we must understand is that the two distinct peoples on these two roads and these separate walks of life do not skip along merrily on their way with little or no contact. As we've noted in the past few weeks in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there, is, there are two offsprings in our world which are in mortal combat. In the end, God prophesies in Genesis 3.15 that a single representative of the offspring of the woman will deal a self-sacrificing death blow to the single representative of the offspring of the serpent. But the two distinct peoples of these representatives will engage until the end of the age in a death struggle. We saw last week in Genesis 4 the initiation of that struggle as Cain, the representative of the offspring of the serpent, murders Abel, the representative of the offspring of God. Cain, the representative of that godless progeny, kills Abel as a representative. So we studied Cain's downward, 
downward spiral last week, his downward spiral of sin. He rejects God's counsel, yet God allows Cain to live and to prosper physically. Cain is cursed. Remember where we left off last week? He's negotiating with God. Notice verse 13 of chapter 4, Genesis 4.13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain... He will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that, no one would, uh, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, or the land of wandering east of Eden. Cain, the unrepentant murderer of Abel, becomes the father of the worldly society which will oppose the people of God. One way that the godless oppose the godly in the world is to persecute. And if you're ever here on a Wednesday night, you're well aware that there are people dying for Jesus Christ, in prison for Jesus Christ. We talk about them all the time. We pray for them all the time. There is a godless plan to stamp out God's people, to murder and to kill them, to imprison them, to put them away. That's not true here. So much in America, we don't believe it's true at all, we don't know, but there is another way in which the world seeks to influence and seeks to uh, override the godly world, and that is through its influence. To influence, there's an insidious attack which comes through the world's influence upon the godly. Cain's society, his people are the majority populace on earth today, and they constantly work together to influence God's people away from God. Let's step back for a moment and look at the big picture, or at least a little larger picture than what we'll look at today for most of our time. Genesis chapter 4, we have Cain and Abel. Cain, of course, killing Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, look at it there in your Bible, and then through chapter 5, so Genesis chapter 4, 25, all the way through chapter 5, we have here the descendants of Seth who replaces Abel. And we have then in chapter 4 and chapter 5 twin accounts of two societies of people who live together. What happens in Genesis chapter 6? Who's winning? We get to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and following, those first verses of Genesis chapter 6, and we find that God looks and He doesn't find anybody living a godly life, except for Noah. So the godless world influences the godly world to the point of Genesis 6 where God is at the place of destroying the earth. That same scenario is still carried on. God has promised He'll not destroy the earth with a flood, but that same type of relationship continues. Now let's go back to chapter 6, or chapter 4, rather, Genesis 4. We begin to see now the development of these two societies, and they will continue on throughout the Bible. The world, or the city of man, as it might be called, and God's people, or the city of God. We notice, first of all, beginning in verse 17, the erection and the population of the city of man. Cain lay with his wife. I'm in Genesis 4, 17. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Stop just at that moment. 
We're not introduced to Cain's wife. I think it's important to answer the evolutionists. Cain's wife was his sister. At that time, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's a horrifying thought to us, and it ought to be a horrifying thought to us. But in that setting, at that time, there was nothing wrong with that. His wife was his sister. We're not introduced to her, however. But what we do see here is evidence of what we might call common grace. Cain, the murderer, is not killed. Cain, the murderer, marries a wife. Cain, the murderer, enjoys that intimacy and enjoys the fruit of that intimacy, a child. When we say common grace, what we mean by that is, is that it is commonly shown, not that it happens all the time so much, though it does, but that it is all uh, overarching. It's, it, it, there's a wide expanse to the grace of God. He allows food to grow. He sends the rain on the godly and the ungodly. And he allows godless people to marry and bear children and know the joy of a family. What joy that could possibly be without God. But Cain is a murderer. He's shunned God's counsel. He's refused to repent of his sin. Yet God mercifully gives him this child, Enoch. Verse 17, Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now remember in chapter 4 and verse 12, Cain is cursed as a restless wanderer. There may be a better translation, a wandering fugitive. And so we ask, how can a fugitive, a wandering fugitive, build a city? In verse 16, we remember that he's gone into the land of Nod. That is the land of wandering. And so there's a sense in which there's a circle around his land, and inside are those who are the wandering. Uh, Cain is a wanderer in the land of Nod. It's a somewhat isolated location from the rest of civilization as it's developing, as people are being born and having children. By building a city in Nod, the land of wandering, Cain may be trying to resist the curse of God, that he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer, but I think there's something else to it. I think it is this, should Cain ever leave this city, he would still be a wanderer. He would still be isolated from the rest of the world. That was the curse that was laid upon him for his, the murder of his brother. He's shunned by society. It's interesting, as you move into the Old Testament law, that the, the uh, laws laid down for the cities of refuge use these very same terms and ideas. If the murder, and there it is in the idea of manslaughter, the, man, the one who's committed manslaughter flees to one of these cities of refuge, they're to be safe there, but if they come out of the city of refuge, they're, I don't know how else to say it, but they're fair game. You know, they, Somebody can go after them and get them. And I think there's a sense in which that's true of Cain here. Though he's being protected by God, he's still a wanderer. He's rootless. He's isolated from society. And in his isolation from God, he says, I'm going to build a city. And I'm going to name it after my son. Now, that might be a noble thing to do today. I don't think it has to be done in, in, in a godless way. But I think it is evidence here in this context, in this setting, of a self-centered focus on Cain's part. In a sense, he boasts that in his isolation, he'll make his own world. He may be a wanderer from God and man everywhere else on earth, but not in this city. This is his city, and he names it after his son. And you know what? The city prospers. Notice verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methusael. Methuselah was the father of Lamech. 
Each of these men are likely firstborn sons through whom the genealogies were reckoned and their birth and the assumed multitude of people that are associated with them is again evidence of God's common grace. We don't have in this setting, of course, uh, birth control. We don't have the cultural uh, ideas of, of limiting the number of children that are born. We don't have some of the trials physically that are operative in our world uh, that, that would hinder how many children could be had. But remember, these are people living many, many years. And so I think what we should understand is that many are being born. Many people are being born. And as Cain, uh, Cain's line then is traced here in, in verse 18 through these individuals. The city of the murderer grows. Babies are born in the city of man. One generation gives birth to another, and the influence of Cain expands within the city. Now this man Lamech that we mentioned there right at the end of verse 18 that is, that is referred to there, this man Lamech is particularly significant. He's a great-great-grandson of Canaan. He's singled out as the father of the developing culture of Cain's city. So we've looked at the erection of the city, the building of the city. It's now being populated. Let's look at the culture of the city, which is traced through this man Lamech, verse 19. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron, and Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. The culture of the city of man. We notice there in verse 19, as the city of Enoch develops, we see the degradation of the family unit. Lamech is not satisfied with one wife. I need a second wife. Never in the Creator's mind was there ever to be a woman on earth who was a second living wife. No woman was to ever suffer that indignity. But Lamech makes that choice in his own sinful heart. There's going to be a second woman under my roof. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 lays bare God's design. One man, one woman, married for life. The Creator's gift to mankind. This permanent heterosexual, monogamous relationship with design as the pillar of society. That just simply, folks, is God's plan. It's his design, it's his gift, it's his beauty. But with Lamech, Cain's great-great-grandson, the destructive seeds of alternative marriage practices begins. And I'll tell you, our world continues to reel in the devastating consequences. Uh, and I know many of us are touched by those consequences, some of us in very personal ways. Uh, I thank God for the grace of God that continues to march on, that continues to help us, and continues to lift us up. But it is part of the city of man. It is part of the development, the degradation of God's plan. And uh, Islamic takes here a second wife. We notice his children are singled out. Ada gave birth to Jabel in verse 20. He's the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. How are we to understand that? Well, Abel had kept flocks before, but this Hebrew word is a broader word, and it would include donkeys and camels and the like. This man is one who figured out that if you keep certain flocks together, certain cattle together, they, they, there's money in it. it you, you, this will work. You can provide food and you can provide, in that day, transportation to people. As, as you raise this, so I guess this is the used car salesman's lot on the outside of town or something. The farmer on the outside of town, they live in tents. I don't think that means they never lived in the city, 
but it does mean that I think we should understand at least that they're in some way connected to the city. There is the selling that's beginning here. Uh, an economy is developing as they in tents herd their cattle uh, and raise them for city dwellers. In verse 21, we find then secondly the father of the professional musician. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. The harp and the flute, we, we do not know what these instruments look like, uh, but the, the harp was uh, what appears to be a ten-stringed instrument that was portable, and uh, the flute a pipe that was made out of reeds. Uh, maybe one, maybe more, and maybe as time developed there were reeds added to it. But uh, this, this is all that we know. But maybe, in a sense, these are representative ideas of the wind instruments and the stringed instruments. But these individuals would have then played for, uh, made music for things like weddings and festivals and general entertainment. In verse 22, Zillah also had Tubal Cain, a son, uh, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. The Hebrew indicates that Tubal Cain hammered and sharpened and engraved these metals. Now, the evolutionists tell us that the Bronze and the Iron Age are two separate ages. They never were together. What we have here is the very early stages of human civilization, and there is uh, both of these metals are present uh, together. Uh, part of the thing is that the evolutions have mi millions and millions of years to fill up, and so everything's got to be separated by a long space. That wasn't really the case. This man um, is developing uh, the production of farm equipment, certainly for all people, and even people in the city at that time would have had uh, been raising crops on their own for their own food. And uh, certainly there are, there are tools as well that are being used with the um, nurturing of cattle and the like. And who knows all what he made, how much he knew, how much was invented. But obviously we have here the beginnings of a primitive society and its cultural development. Three urban guilds are introduced here in Genesis 4. God had cursed Cain. Think about this. Put it together. This isn't just, just meaningless statements here. God has cursed Cain. Cain is a murderer. Cain is a godless individual. But God gives Cain and his city the ability to develop and discover and build and settle. Develop a great economy with great success. That doesn't take virtue any of those things in themselves. There's a fourth child that is named here, and I think with great significance, though it might be missed on us as we just look at the text, but at the end of verse 22, we're introduced to Tubal-Cain's sister and Nama. Tubal-Cain's sister named Nama. That word, the Hebrew word, means pleasant or delightful or beautiful. So to Lamech and Zillah, we're to understand, was born a daughter renowned for her beauty. I mean, why bring out this one daughter? By this point in time, there have been multitudes of daughters born. But the text sees fit to bring this out. It's foreshadowing. If I tell you what it's foreshadowing for, you'll miss the shadow when the force shows up, or however you put that. But it is foreshadowing. There's beauty in this woman, and we'll develop that here in just a little bit. But I think it points to chapter 6. Now think about this. Let's stop for a moment and apply it to our own world. It's really no different. Our world has changed quite a bit, certainly in technology, but it's, it's the same thing. We have cities, we have families, we have an economy, we have the uh, interrelationship within society of various guilds and the like. But I ask you this, if you lined up 100 of the most beautiful, physically, let's say, physically beautiful women on earth, 
How many of them do you believe would be godly, righteous, devoted Christians? The 100 most beautiful women on earth physically, and I know that the beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but let's just say you take a, you take a poll. How many of them would be godly, godly people? If you establish a top 100 list of the greatest scientists or authors or inventors and philosophers and athletes and musicians, military and political figures in history, how many of them would be genuinely righteous people? I think we'd all agree, not too many of them. The family of Cain, the city of Enoch, the world continues to supply the major players in cultural and technological advancement on the earth. And it's always been that way. God's people have contributed greatly. But the world holds a decided edge in this development. It is a restless society a spiritually bankrupt society, a troubled society, but it is a very productive class of people. And I think that's all part of God's design. God said, subdue the earth. And there's a developing group of people here who want nothing to do with God, but in God's wisdom, He leads them through His sovereign plan to fulfill His commission in His own way, whether or not they do it to His glory. Creator is having his way. Technology and invention and science and art go on and are being developed by this godless world. Now, I hasten to say that technology and invention and science and art and the like are not evil. It is the attitude with which and the purpose for which man engages in these pursuits that's evil. Let me go from preaching to meddling for a little bit. All right? You can endure that. We have, I, I don't think I'm painting a strange picture at all. We have a Christian couple who scoffs at believers who say that the movie theater is evil. Foolish people. And then that same couple goes to a movie theater, watches on screen a beautiful woman, a Nema, seductively remove her clothes. And then that couple leaves the theater with no concept that the influence of the world has wrapped its tentacles around their heart. No concept. There's nothing evil about a movie theater. There's nothing evil about film. There's nothing evil about somebody charging you money to see a film. And there's really, you know, frankly, nothing evil about a woman taking her clothes off. Nothing at all. But what we have to learn to see and decipher is what worldview, what attitude toward God, what system of morality drives the goal of a film crew to take pictures of a woman taking her clothes off and then selling those pictures to a worldwide audience. God is no prude. And we're wrong if we think that way. God talks very frankly in His Word about adultery, prostitution, seduction, illicit sex, he talks about it. But the world employs technology to paint these very themes in ways that make them look safe and innocent and satisfying. Similar analogies could certainly be drawn all over the place. I'm just looking at Nema. But we could go on into her brothers and we could look at the seduction of the world through technology in areas of materialism. In areas of pride, academia, and the like. In areas of music, 
What we must learn to do is to decipher the spirit of the age and decipher the proper use of technology. It is wrong. I don't agree with those that look at the technology and say the technology is evil and close their mind to having to ever think and having to ever decipher. And I'll admit there are, there are hard decisions to be made when it comes to the arts and the sciences on some of these things. Where has the world won the day? Where do we tap into the world's abilities and products but draw the line at the world's spirit? I know it's hard. I work with you on that. I'm not some isolated uh, monk uh, that sits up in his closed room and never touches this world. I do every day. It's hard sometimes to know where to draw the lines. But we've got to learn to decipher the spirit of the age. And I think that's what comes out to us in the next verses. We've looked at the erection and population of the city of man, the culture of the city of, of man that is progressing and developing. <clears throat> what we have then in verse 23 is the spirit of the city of man. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Cain is avenged seven times and Lamech 77 times. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. I'm going to admit here, folks, this is really hard to interpret. This is an ancient poem. Have you ever read any ancient poems, a Gilgamesh epic or something? Your head's just spinning. You know, I remember my high school history teacher teaching us what Gilgamesh meant. And you know, it's like, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's hard to know what some of these things mean. And I, I've worked very hard at trying to interpret this poem, and I don't stand here as an authority because it's hard to figure out. There's many different views that divide interpreters, but I do think that Dalich is absolutely right when he calls this poem, in his words, an expression of titanic arrogance. Although the Hebrew leaves some doubt, and you can see that in your margin probably, your marginal reference, I believe it is right that Lamech did in fact kill a man. Now there's some variance there. He maybe didn't, some would argue, but I think he has killed a man. And a young man, the Hebrew word used there sometimes of youth, but it includes people up to 40. The point of it is that Lamech is rejoicing here to his wives. He comes in the front door, if they had doors, I don't know, but he comes in the front door and he says, come here wives. And they come before him, and he is exulting in the fact that I killed an able-bodied man. Or if you take the other view, he's exulting in the fact that he could kill an able-bodied man. Why did Lama kill this man? The Hebrew word for killed that's used here carries the idea of ruthless violence. It's the same word that is used to describe Cain's murder of Abel in verse 25. And so it seems then that a young man hit Lamech, and Lamech took it upon himself to retaliate with ruthless violence. Lamech goes home and he brags about it. Now, verse 24, I think that's what's going on in verse 23. I'm fairly confident in that interpretation. Verse 24 gets even harder. And our understanding of this verse hinges upon the meaning we assign to the word avenged. Cain, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. It recalls chapter 4 and verse 15. You remember that? Let's look back at that. The Lord said to Cain, not so if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. So if somebody kills Cain, that Cain will be avenged by the killing of that person seven times. Now Lamech is saying not seven times, Lamech's avenged 77 times. So God protects Cain, assuring him 
with a sevenfold protection, Lamech claims that he, in contrast to Cain, has been avenged 70 times, 77 times, not for killing a man, for killing, because he was simply hurt. I'm lost what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm saying? Cain killed somebody. And if somebody kills Cain, he'll be avenged seven times. Lamech said, somebody just hurt me, and I avenged myself 77 times. I think the point of it is this. Lamech's arrogance. He sees himself as the avenger, not Cain. God avenges Cain seven times a murderer. I just got hurt. I avenged myself 77 times. I settle my own accounts. I get even is the spirit of this city. As Voss has put it, what God had ordained as a measure of protection for Cain is here scorned. The role, the sole reliance placed upon human revenge through the sword. And the sole reliance placed upon human revenge through the sword. The spirit of Lamech depends upon itself alone. We could just put that phrase over our whole culture and the godless cultures of the world. The spirit of Lamech depends upon itself alone. Those of you there in the adult class, read that last paragraph in our notes. You see there the spirit of Lamech. We depend only on us. We don't need God. So we have here a city, a restless community of wanderers alienated from God, drawing their lineage back to Cain, the one who rejected repentance. We have a developing culture, a growing organization of arts and sciences that's developing well enough alone without God. We have a spirit of pride, all done to the glory of man, all done to the protection of self, without any thought of who God is. And then we have the goal of this city, or of this community, to carry on the purpose of its father, Cain, to stamp out God's people either by murder or by influence. We are then introduced in the text to the city of God. We have the city of man, now the city of God. It's developed further in chapter 5, but it's mentioned here, I think, to provide the necessary contrast and the balance to the, to the narrative, to the text. Cain's city is not the only society which has experienced growth at this time. We find in verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now back to Adam. We're backing up in time. Going back to the start again, now through a different line. This line starts with Seth, the brother of Cain. Eve sees Seth as a replacement of Abel. It takes us back to chapter 3 and verse 15, these two seeds. She had probably come to think that Cain was the man that would be the godly representative. There's some indication in her speech in the first part of chapter 4 that didn't pan out. Cain has now run away from God. You notice that Eve has given up all thought of him replacing Abel as a godly representative. And so she sees, however, in this Seth, one who will replace the righteous Abel in the conflict with the godless Cain. There develops here, I think, an important biblical theme. As Genesis unfolds, it returns again and again to the theme that the promised seed of the woman comes not through the natural leader of the family, the firstborn, but through whomever God chooses. And God just loves to mess with what we think is important, doesn't He? 
in that culture particularly, not so true with ours, but in that culture particularly, the firstborn was always the one who had the right of inheritance and the one who always led the family. That was just a matter of pride. It's, I understand still that way in Israel to a large degree. When, when a boy is born, there's nothing wrong with women, and there's, and there's I think, a development of, of a good attitude toward them, but it's the boy, that firstborn boy, he's the one. He's the one that leads the family. Think about it in the Scriptures. You've got Abraham, who's not a firstborn. Isaac, well, you know, Isaac, Isaac's an only born, but really he's not. He's not Abraham's first son. You've got Jacob, you've got Ephraim, you've got Judah, you've got David. None of them are firstborn. God just, just loves to say and teaches us through this whole system, I will choose whom I will choose. I do the electing. And that theme is evident here. It's not Cain who is chosen by God. It's not Cain who leads the godly society. It's Seth, Cain's younger brother. And I think that's seen not only in the fact that he's a, a younger son that parallels the rest of the book of Genesis with the choosing of the younger, but also the meaning of the word Seth, which is akin to the verb translated granted. King James translates it appointed. The Hebrew word means to set, to place, to appoint. It points to God's sovereign choice of Seth. God has placed him. I don't think that it is necessary to say that Seth was Eve's third son. I, guess, I don't think there's anything in the text that demands that. There may have been other children that were born. But for some reason, she sees in Seth the replacement of Abel. Seth was viewed as the specific son of choice. Verse 26, then, we read that Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. Now Seth's line is beginning to develop. Cain's line has a jump start on it, but his line does begin to develop. General term meaning man or mankind uh, is the word Enosh. Uh, like Cain, Seth becomes a father. Unlike Cain, Seth's line would not boast an independence from God, but rather, as we see in verse 26, at that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now I, have, I think we need to say that that simple phrase, as difficult as it is to translate, ties into this line of Seth. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. I don't think it means that no one's ever talked to God before, right? Adam and Eve have talked to God. Cain and Abel have had obvious communication with God who explained to them how to sacrifice. There has been discussion between God and people before. And I don't think that this was the first time people ever used the name Yahweh, the Hebrew translation of Lord, because Eve uses it two times already in the, in the text. So what is the point? Well, there's a very intriguing marginal reference. You may have it in your English Bible, but it's in the Hebrew Bible at least, and that is this. It is by the name of the Lord. They were first known by the name of the Lord. In other words, this line of Seth was now known as God's people. I love that idea because it fits everything, but I think it got put in the margin because it fits everything. It makes sense of this difficult phrase. There isn't a whole lot of evidence for that marginal reading. I think what we have here then is this. I think what we have is public worship. We have people gathering together to call on the name of the Lord. People have been calling on the name of the Lord individually. That's nothing new added to the text. They've been talking to God already. But I think in the days of Seth, God's people began to gather together to pray. It's hard to decide what the phrase means, but that's the best I can do, and I think that might be the point. God is not limited to time or space, is He? But we are. 
And so to speak personally with God in his physical presence is impossible, except through prayer. And it is the opinion of many Bible scholars that the prayers offered here are in fact corporate prayers. So we have a primitive church, a gathering of God's people out of the world for the purpose of worship. And there is to this day no substitute for such meetings. In the battle to resist the influence of the world, it is vital that we routinely gather together with God's people for the purpose of worshiping our Master. As we learn in the subsequent chapters of Genesis, the battle to resist the influence of the world is neither easy nor popular. I want to just say as we close today, I thank God for the opportunity to gather each Lord's Day with God's people. I look forward to this. I thank God for His people. I thank Him that we can come out of the world around and in our unique setting in America, I have the privilege even to gather within a single room in freedom to worship the Lord, to encourage one another in our efforts to resist and influ the influence of the world. There is no Christian that has a greater struggle with the influence of the world than the Christian who routinely does not gather together with God's people. Whatever this passage means, that's true. God makes that clear over and over again. We need each other to help each other think straight. Do you feel it? You must, because I feel it. I think a little differently when I'm around you. There's a tendency to just kind of shore up how we think and to be confirmed in what we believe. And you get around a godless world and you're in it all day, every day. And it's easy to be so influenced by that world, you begin to think a little differently. And as time goes on, that influence increases. And we turn around. And we really wonder if we're making any progress in Christ's likeness. We need the assembly. We need each other. We need to be part of the family of God, worshiping God, calling on His name together. Do it privately, but we've got to do it as well publicly. The world persecutes us. And by us, I mean the church in general over the world, not here so much in America. There's some of that and very little. But the world persecutes us. There's people in jail today because they trust in Christ. The world kills us. There are people that are being killed in prison for Christ and on the streets for Christ in particular. We've just been hearing of some just in the last months. I saw in a magazine, maybe some of you saw that, I don't even remember what it was, but just here recently, three men have been gone for five years. The world kills. The world persecutes and we must remember, particularly in our setting, the world seeks to influence us. What is our response? To selflessly, lovingly invite them to join us by means of reconciliation with Christ. What a profound demonstration of the love of God. You kill us, you murder us, you throw our people in prison. You seek to influence us away from what we believe. You seek to drag us down. You know what our response is? We want you to join us. We want you to come to see the love of our Savior, and we want to love you as a brother or sister in Christ. That's the Spirit of Jesus. That's our response. What's our destiny? Final victory to the glory of our great Savior. 
Genesis 6 doesn't look so good. Genesis 11 doesn't look so good. And as we look around our world today and we look at the teeming masses that have no time for God, no love for Him, they may even go to church, but in the heart of hearts they don't care for God. It doesn't look so good, but it will end well. We know that. We're God's people. We have that hope in our heart. We have that faith that drives us on. And so we gather together as God's people, holding each other up because we don't have to win the war. We just have to hold out till Jesus comes back. And He will. We thank You, dear Father, that in fact the war has been won. God, we thank You for the work of Jesus Christ who crushed the head of Satan. It meant His own death. We know now that He lives and we rejoice together today as Your people. What a strange, strange, peculiar message we believe. God, by the Spirit, You have taught us that there was a Jew who lived 2,000 years ago who was the Son of God, equal with God. That that Jew beat death. God, how we thank You that Jesus Christ reigns today and will reign on earth in the near future as You look at time. We know not when that will come, but we look forward to it as your people. God, as your people pray right now, I pray that we'd labor in prayer for the lost world that's around us, that others would be spared from the devastation of an eternity without you. Some of them missing you, it would seem, by just a hairbreadth, as they attend church and read their Bible and seek to do good deeds, but do not know you personally. Lord, if there'd be any among us here today, it's not come to truly identify with the people of God through the salvation provided by Christ. That you draw that one to yourself. Help us, dear Father, as we live as your people to show out time and again we're not afraid of the advances of our world. We're not afraid of technology. We're not scared by the arts and sciences per se. But, Father, may we prove ourselves to be godly, discerning people who know how to resist the influence of the world. This is my prayer for your church here and for your church throughout the world. In Christ's name I pray.